You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. I'm Kylie Smith, the Archivist and Museum Director, and my co-host is Dr. Mary Osborne, the Director of the Stewart House Museum. Thank you for joining us as we travel through the Key Magazine from 1882 to today. Well, we are back for Key Matters. Hello, Dr. Oz. Hi, Kylie. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. So we're doing 1905 and 1906. And I forget, did you choose 1906 for any particular reason or just because? Just because, although when I was researching the episode, I realized some important things happened. So it's good that I chose 1905. (laughs) It worked out. It worked out well. Well, and I picked 1905 and what a year. I mean, not really. Um, There wasn't a ton going on in 1905, at least maybe because I didn't think there was because I'm not a military historian. So everything that I read about for context in 1905, it was all about the Russo-Japanese War. It was huge. So I'm not downplaying that. Um, But again, not a military historian. And as a humanitarian, I was heartbroken to see that more than 100,000 people died during that that effort. And then the whole to-do led to a revolution in Russia, not that one, but a revolution nonetheless. And then the world also saw a revolution in Poland. Um, Canada and the U.S. were expanding west, and my sister will appreciate this. The founding of Las Vegas happened in 1905. A few other things of note in 1905, Rotary International was founded in Chicago. Teddy Roosevelt has his second inauguration, and he was sworn in for a full term since his first term was started after the assassination of President McKinley. That same year, he sent his 21-year-old daughter, Alice Roosevelt, on a diplomatic trip to Japan, the Philippines, Hong Kong, China, and Korea. So (laughs) I was trying to think, uh, what was I doing at 21? I surely was not serving as a diplomat for my father, who was president. What were you doing when you were 21? I was still in college, but yeah. not so, embarking on any trips around the world. Not a diplomatic envoy. So I guess one big thing too, in 1905, Einstein really came to the fore and published four groundbreaking papers and he completed his doctoral dissertation. You know, that fancy equation that we all know, but most of us don't really know. E equals MC squared. That came in 1905. Also in July of that year, Florence Kelly delivered a speech about child labor before the convention of the National American Women's Suffrage Association in Philadelphia. That actually sounded familiar to me. Does that sound familiar to you? A little. Um, to I, anyone I, who, oh, go ahead. I'm familiar with Florence Kelly's work in, um, in inspecting factories and child labor laws. And we talk about her and um, one of the classes that I have taught about. Mm-hmm. I was familiar with her from a historical sense, but anyone who took speech class, that's how I remembered her because that speech that she gave is discussed everywhere in anyone who is examining speeches similar to the way we examine I have a dream and the imagery that Dr. King used. So she used a lot of rhetorical devices. And when I looked that up, I was like, why does she sound familiar? And I remembered that speech, but not necessarily from any of the the history classes that I took. 
And naturally, she argued that if women had the right to vote, we'd actually get laws passed that prevented child labor abuses. So really important piece that she she served. And then this is timely after our recent visit to Hannibal, Missouri, to take in all of the Mark Twain sites. In 1905, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer were banned from the Brooklyn Public Library for setting a bad example. <laughs> Poor kids, super impressionable at that time. And finally, I have a love-hate relationship with this one. I'm grateful for it, but I hate when I need it. Novocaine was introduced by Alfred Einhorn in 1905. So as a regular dental patient, not my favorite thing, but I'm glad we have it because it makes the dentist a little bit easier. Of those born in 1905, we have Ayn Rand, the American author and philosopher, Clara Bow and Myrna Loy, the American film actresses. And then the Swedish actress Greta Garbo was born in 1905. And this is my favorite. The famous tennis player from our Berkeley chapter, her name was Helen Wills, has been described by some as the greatest female tennis player in history. Tommy Dorsey, the American band leader, was born in 1905, as was Howard Hughes, the aviation pioneer and film mogul. Jules Verne, the author of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, died in 1905, as did Mary Livermore, the journalist, abolitionist, and women's rights advocate. That is the same Mary Livermore who was initiated as an honorary member by IOTA chapter at DePauw in 1879. And as one of the most famous women in the world, she was known to introduce herself to Kappas after that when she met them while traveling, especially when she noticed them wearing their golden Kappa keys. So wear your key more frequently and you might run into famous Kappas every now and then. Now to the key. We're still super into calling it the official organ of Kappa Kappa Gamma, which makes me giggle a bit. We have a new editor, Adele Lathrop from New York City. So we're moving away from chapters, taking on the responsibility of furnishing an editor and then essentially serving as the editorial board. The first thing that caught my attention in these issues is the addition of writings from folks, men in this case, who are influential in higher education The January issue opens with a letter from James H. Canfield, who was president of Ohio State University six years before he wrote this. But in 1905, at that time, he was serving as the librarian of Columbia University. He's the father of famous Kappa Dorothy Canfield Fisher, for whom our World War II aid fund, the Dorothy Canfield Fisher Fund, was named. Dr. Canfield, in his experiences at several U.S. colleges and with an honorary doctor of letters from Oxford University, presents all sides of fraternity membership, but it was interesting, he cautions against some of the natural pitfalls, things like spending too much time or money and taking on the social aspects much more seriously than they should. So um, then later in the October issue, Benjamin Andrews, the chancellor from the University of Nebraska, opened that issue, and he delves more into a sort of plea for fraternity men and women to recognize the great benefits of fraternity membership, while also being more kind and generous in their attitudes to the outside college world, as well as the college itself. And in doing so, they might help limit the talk of the abolition of fraternity life. So kind of a don't say I didn't warn you moment, because we know in the 1880s, there was a huge movement to to try to sweep aside this fraternity movement. And sometimes it could be blamed on the activities and behaviors of the fraternity members themselves. I was sad to see that the January issue 
reflected on the news that at the previous convention, Minetta Taylor had resigned as historian. And this writer, who I later saw was Mae Westerman, pointed out that the fraternity history was not going to be written by the first editor of The Key. So as a later enthusiast of fraternity history, I am just as heartbroken as May when she wrote that article. She even points out, we may have a history that's written, but it won't be by Minetta Taylor. And that is a huge, huge loss. But can you imagine if we had that resource at our fingertips, a Minetta Taylor history? But then I can't complain too much. Her replacement was Mae Westerman. And I know that we are both smitten with the Westerman history. So that's a bit of a silver lining. But it also makes sense why May worked so tirelessly. In 1904, she wrote that we would hopefully have the long-awaited and much-needed history at the 1906 convention. I have a feeling that when you're reflecting on 1906, you're not going to give a big announcement about a history. So something more substantial than the little volume that was edited by Minnie Royce Walker in 1903 is what they were hoping for. And don't worry, they were pals, so I'm sure that Minnie wasn't offended when they promised this new volume of history. But by 1906, we still didn't have a history. So when the 20s rolled around and we still didn't have this long history, I'm sure May was like, I'm not having it. We are going to work on this. And she nearly killed herself publishing the 800 page tome that was finally released in 1932. Reading through these issues, there are a number of articles and conversations directed at the alumni including one from former fraternity president Gene Penfield, who in 1905 was serving as the chairman of the Social Service Committee. This is a great example of women's fraternities coming together to consider how the alumni can support women's students. She mentions working toward the appointment of women's deans on all co-educational campuses, setting up a Bureau of Comparative Legislation that will help monitor and regulate rules that are in place wherever there are women's leagues, dormitories, or sorority houses, as well as our duty as alumni to assist women students in an advisory capacity. In the personals, I had a Dr. Oz moment when I landed on a familiar name in the Cornell notes. Dr. Emily Dunning married Dr. Benjamin Barringer in 1905, and they included a snippet from a New York newspaper that noted, after the ceremony, the bride and bridegroom went to Dr. Dunning's residence for breakfast, then headed to the pier and sailed at 10 a.m. to Antwerp, where they would both take a special course of study at the medical college in Vienna. So talk about a romantic honeymoon. Nothing um, like a working vacation, but does sound... Similar to the Curie's honeymoon, they did a, a biking tour, and I'm pretty sure they discussed physics while they were mm-hmm. honeymooning. But hey, you know, if if that's your passion, then... Well, if they had time for a, a post-wedding breakfast and got to their ship that sailed at 10, I want to know what time the wedding was at. And they said family and friends were there. So can you imagine getting an invitation that's like, join us at 7.30 a.m.? for a wedding. I'd be like, why didn't you do it the night before? And our friend Kay Larson will appreciate that the April 1905 issue starts out with an account of the installation of her beta pi at the University of Washington. I think this statement sums it up, and I love this. Our advent into the far Northwest is of equal interest and importance, though for different reasons. Washington is a new state. Its university is young. The history and traditions of both are, in the largest degree, yet to be made. But you cannot journey through this section of our United States 
and spend a week in the city of Seattle without being deeply impressed with the courage and the splendid enterprise of the Northwest. And I liked the chapter's sweet update in the July issue, suggesting that chapters consider a preserving party like they do. (laughs) The writer explains that they put up can after can of luscious fruit for the shelves of the frat house pantry. It's a homely custom, we admit, but on the many dark and rainy evenings in the winter, we look back with a great deal of appreciation to our preserving day. (laughs) Maybe we should have a preserving party at Storehouse. Yeah, we need to start growing something manageable. Probably not apples like they would have done, you know, in in Washington. Maybe some ground cherries. I know the uh, Warren County History Museum grew a number of fruits and vegetables, including ground cherries for a program. So maybe that can go in the kitchen garden. Yeah, and then the basement would be a good storage area. Or we could dig you a root cellar. (laughs) I think I'd like to have a root cellar. A, a awesome. specific place for all of my well and it could it could double as your tornado shelter so that would be even handier well I already have a safe room on the first floor oh I know but a root cellar it's even better I mean well yeah uh Wizard of Oz where they went into the root cellar tried to get that door pulled well, maybe we could put one in at my house too there you go that'd be good um among the articles that ask about the evils of rushing how to handle non-members, and the lofty aspirations of womanhood, there are also more discussions about college politics and the role of fraternities and sororities. Members are asking about the dignity of so-called electioneering, voting in your own members and gathering the votes of other groups with promises of voting in their members, and so on. So we'll see this coming up time and time again, as happens with any group of organized students on almost any campus. And just for you, I happened across this note in Cornell's letter to the key. Honor and recognition came to Cy recently through Molly Crawford, 04, who is doing graduate medical work here in Ithaca before her final two years in the medical college in New York, when she spoke at the annual banquet of the New York Alumni Association of Cornell, held in New York on February 8th. She is the only undergraduate who has ever been honored with a toast at an affair of this kind. And from all reports, we have every reason to be proud of her. Yay. <laughs> Just a tiny yay. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I gotta temper all my enthusiasm, you know. Right, right. There's so much Dr. Crawford all the time. <laughs> Well, and Beta Pi wasn't the only chapter installed in 1905, as Beta Sigma at Adelphi College on Long Island was installed in May. The account of that installation is in the July 1905 issue, and I cringed the whole way through as they called the new member Pledgelings. So I'm glad that we have hopefully learned a bit since then. And I mentioned earlier that there has been even more talk of cooperating on campuses and among the alumni, and this sentiment of cooperation is made even stronger by the review of the fourth inter-sorority conference. It was held in Chicago in September 1905, and delegates from Pi Phi, Theta, Kappa, Delta Gamma, Alpha Phi, Gamma Phi Beta, Alpha Chi Omega, Tri Delta, Alpha Z Delta, Chi Omega, and AO Pi were all in attendance. And this is the one where they wrote a constitution and began discussing the formal establishment of panhellenics on college campuses. So each participating group took responsibility on the campuses where their group was first established, 
And honestly, I didn't really care about that so much as my interest in seeing the campuses on which we were the first to be established in one list. So that was much more interesting to me. So for our list, we were the first to be established on the campuses of Adelphi, Adrian, Barnard, Boston, Bucknell, which would later become Akron, Butler, Hillsdale, Illinois Wesleyan, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Penn, and Wisconsin. We had 14 and only PiFi had more with 17. And I have to say that the very last issue of this year, October 1905, is my favorite because it ends with group photos of all the chapters and they're all identified. So what a feat. You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum, the Stewart House, is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by the director of the Stewart House Museum and member of Alpha Deuteron Chapter at Monmouth College, Dr. Mary Osborne, and me, Kylie Smith, from Omicron Deuteron Chapter at Simpson College and the archivist and museum director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.